0: Good morning. My name is Michelle, and I have the privilege of serving on the communion team and the prayer team. Today's scripture reading is Philippians 4, 10-23 from the NIV. I rejoiced greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I am not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through Him who gives me strength. Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. I am amply supplied now that I receive from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of His glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet all God's people in Christ Jesus. The brothers and sisters who are with me send greetings. All God's people here send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. This is God's word.
1: Thank you, Michelle. (laughs) We are uh, concluding our series through the book of Philippians as we turn a corner into the Advent season. And as we do, we come to a lesson that is both timeless and also very timely as we reflect on this past year and what is taking a place in the busy Christmas season. And that is a lesson on contentment. So let's pray together and let's ask the Holy Spirit to speak to us all that we, like Paul says here, would learn what it means to be content. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, We thank you for the gift, the ultimate gift that you have given to us in Christ. I pray that all of us would treasure this as the greatest gift that we could ever receive in this season. And as a result, that we would learn to be content, that we would learn to be reconciled to where we're at and with what we have. And I pray that that contentment would be a great witness to the watching world of where our true treasure lies. I pray that you would speak into areas of discontent within me and within us all, that you'd bring healing. And I pray for those this morning who do not yet know you, that they would come to know you and learn true contentment in a relationship with you through all that you've done for us in Jesus. We pray that you would do this in his name, for your glory and our good. And everyone said, amen. Amen. Well, there was in the American South a pilot who would always, when flying, stare down intently at a certain valley near the Appalachian Mountain every time he would pass overhead. And one day his co-pilot would ask, what is so interesting to you about that spot? And the pilot replied, Do you see that stream? Well, when I was a kid, I used to sit there and fish. And every time an airplane flew over, I would look up and wish I were flying. Now, I look down there and wish I were fishing. (laughs) Which is a short story that raises a very important question. Is it possible to be content? with where you are, and with what you have. And I'd love for us to make this personal by asking this question, not out loud. Rhetorical question for your own personal reflection in silence. Where would you rate your contentment level on a scale of 1 to 10? If you're honest this morning with yourself and before God, Where would you rate your contentment level on a scale of 1 to 10? Both in general, but also in specific areas like your marriage or your marital status, your money, your job. Just for context, 1 is like I'm the walking dead. Some of you are like, that's me. (laughs) 10 is I can't believe this is not heaven. Just a little clue for those of you who are married. If you're thinking of your marriage, the answer should be a ten. I can't believe—is this not heaven? Oh, oh, honey! <laughs> but be honest this morning. On a scale of one to ten, where would you rate your life in these particular areas? To be clear, to be content is to be reconciled to your circumstances. That is what it means. Others translate it as being satisfied with where you are, satisfied with what you have. And this is the final theme that Paul addresses in his letter to the Philippian church. And as he does turn the corner to the end, it becomes a sort of autobiography. Throughout this letter, he's been speaking about joy, but he's been talking about it in different ways. Early on in the letter, he's been talking about joy as it's related to peace. And then he talks about joy as it's related to encouragement and how we can encourage one another. Then he moves on to the theme of maturity, how we can find joy in our growth. And then in chapter 4, he started talking about joy in freedom from worry and anxiety. But one of the most powerful ways to get this idea of joy across to me and to you is to talk about contentment. And when he does, notice he uses the the phrases, I know, I know, I know, and I have learned, which shows us that this is all the result of a process. Contentment is something that is learned and it's a process that he explains and unpacks for our good. And I would love for every one of us to hear these lessons about contentment and take them to heart. And here's why. Contentment is one of the greatest signs that you are being changed by God. It's one of the greatest evidences of growth in your life. This is massive. It's one of the great signs that you have truly trusted in and found salvation in Jesus. Now, this is quite a long passage, and the lesson on contentment is found in the middle. But first, we need to talk about the beginning and the end of the passage, because it might be the strangest thank you note ever written. Let's give us some context. Paul is writing to a church that he had helped established in the region of Philippi many years before. And as a, since then, he's faced all kinds of trials and difficulties. He's been imprisoned by Rome under these unjust charges of creating civil unrest when he was simply preaching the gospel. And at the time of his writing, he's unsure and uncertain about what is going to happen in his life. Needless to say, he is in a great of A place of great financial and practical need. Now the Philippian church who knew him and loved him, they helped him. Out of the generosity of their hearts, they provided financial and even practical needs for him. And so here at the end of his letter, he seeks to acknowledge their generosity. But there are three reasons why it's very strange. Why it's a very strange thank you note. Let me give those to you quickly. First, it seems to take him forever to actually say thank you. (laughs) He's kind of like circling the point, but he doesn't quite get to it. Second, he actually avoids referring to their contribution as a gift. And the third reason it's strange is because he says, I actually didn't need it. Imagine if your child, if you have children, or, or your mother, or your father, or your brother, or sister this Christmas, you give them a, a, an extravagant Christmas gift this year. And in the mail around New Year's, you get a, a letter saying, hey, I just want to acknowledge that I received your gift, but I didn't really need it. Sincerely, your brother. Like, what? <laughs> I mean, that's more or less, that's an exaggeration, but that's essentially what Paul's saying. Look at verse 10 through 11a. He says, I rejoice greatly in the Lord. That at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I am not saying this because I am in need. Now, all of this is slightly odd, except he's writing in this way for a reason that we'll get to in a moment. But some historical context is very helpful here. Back then, 2,000 years ago, in the first century, in that Greek-Roman culture, there were rules about gift-giving. Typically, a gift served as the basis for a relationship. So in that culture, gifts were tied to your honor and your status. If you were the giver you were viewed as a superior member of that relationship. You are a patron. The more gifts you gave to people and the more gifts you gave in society, the higher status you had within that society. On the other hand, to be a recipient of a gift— To be dependent on the generosity of another person meant that you were a dependent. And as a result, in that culture, you were expected to heap praise and thanks upon the gift giver. You were obligated to do that. But there was one exception in that culture. And the exception is this. If you were friends and if you were equals. Then there would be no expectation to gush with praise when a gift was given. And so with that background in mind, Paul delicately designs his response to their gift very carefully in order to teach us several things before we get to this main lesson on contentment. The three quick lessons are this. First, Their relationship, his relationship between himself and the Philippian church, was based not on gifts, but on grace. It wasn't a, if you do this for me, I'll do this for you. Friends, this is important because if we're honest, many of our relationships are transactional relationships. We'll have a good relationship as long as you play your part, and then I'll play my part. How often does that happen in our families and around Christmas time? We see them and we keep score. I mean, my kids, they keep score in terms of like how many gifts are given for Christmas and it totally changes the way they view your status. My kids will like add up like, wait a minute, she got the total sum value of this much when I only got this and we're like, oh my gosh. But the same is true in many of our friendships. Friendships like, well, I've done a lot for you this year. You haven't done that much for me. So therefore, I don't know if I'm going to commit more time to you. But Paul's saying our relationship is not based on gifts. It's based on grace. In other words, he's saying, even if you didn't provide for my financial needs, I would still care for you. Isn't that powerful? And that is why he thanks God in verse 10. The second lesson, the way he writes, shows that this is about a partnership. Look at verses 14 and 16. Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel... When I was set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. He's reminding them here of the big picture. This is all about the work of the gospel, partnership in the gospel, a theme that he has addressed throughout this letter. So first, he's saying their relationship was not based on gifts. It was based on grace. Secondly, he's reminding them of the nature of their partnership. But third, the way in which he writes shows that he doesn't want something from them as much as he wants something for them. And that is very important. In verse 17, not that I desire your gifts. What I desire is that more be credited to your account. He says, Yes, your financial aid helped me. But what I really want is that that is credit to your account, that your faith is growing, that it's evidence of your transformation. And that all of this honors God. He says in verse 18 I have received full payment and have more than enough. I am amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts that you sent. They are a fragrant offering an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. So that's the context. That describes the way in which Paul is writing and the reason that he is writing. Now, why is all of this important for us to understand? Because it's necessary to hear his lesson on contentment. Because this passage is about gratitude, yes, for the financial gifts, but more than that, it is about contentment. He uses the nature of the gift and receiving it and acknowledging these important lessons so that he can teach a much bigger lesson on contentment. So here's a man, Paul, who was in great need, and yet he is at home with his circumstance. So how do we get there? How is this possible for me? How is it possible for you? Well, all of us, let's take this to heart. He models and teaches what each of us need to know. And let me say it like this. The first lesson is we need a contentment that prosperity can never give. You and I, we need a contentment that prosperity in this earthly life can never give you. Paul says, even if I didn't receive the financial gift, I'm good. Look at verse 11 through the beginning of verse 12. I'm not saying this because I am in need. For I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need. And I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. Oh, do tell, Paul. Do tell. See, this is important because many of us are discontent right now, whether with life in general or maybe in a specific area of life, like your relationships or your money or your job. Many of us right now are discontent because we believe that our true satisfaction is somewhere out there, it's somewhere ahead. And that you're not okay without it. If I only had the right job. If I I only had the right relationship. If I only had the right house. If I only had the right earnings. If I only had... Indeed, one of the greatest temptations for us all is to think that the source of your contentment lies ahead in something that you can achieve or in something that you can attain. So you acknowledge your discontent in the moment, but you're holding out for what might lie around the corner. You're like, oh, I still haven't gotten my chance at that relationship. Oh, someday, someday I'll have a chance at that new job. Or this script for this great film I've been working on for 37 years. One day, someone will see that it's gold and they will fund it fully. (laughs) But Paul says, whatever you're thinking, that's not it. (laughs) Whatever you think is just around the corner that's going to give you contentment, he says, whatever that is, that's not it. And that is why, friends, he calls contentment a secret in verse 12. Now, that's a very big word that he uses here, and I'm going to explain more about that a little bit later. But he's not using the word secret, and it's something you can never know. The word literally means it's something that's not immediately obvious. So it's not that it's something you could never know unless somebody tells you. The meaning of the word is that the contentment is about something that is there, but it's not immediately obvious to us. Let me give you an example. I would suppose and guess that many of us in this room, it might be immediately obvious that more money would bring us contentment. Like a giant bag of cash is dropped on your doorstep today when you come home from church, and you're like, yes! You get the raise that you've always wanted, and it's far more than you could ever possibly imagine. You're like, ah, contentment in my bank account. See, to the world, that might be obvious. Like, of course, of course money would bring us contentment. But Paul's saying, that's not it. Because contentment, according to the Bible, comes from a source that's not immediately obvious to the watching world. And on the issue of money, it's just simply not true. It's simply not true that money will bring you contentment. Ask anyone who has more money or in other areas, the relationship that you want, the career or the job that you want. Ask anyone. J.D. Rockefeller, who was uh, one of the richest men in the world once, was asked, how much money does it take to be happy? And famously, he answered, just a little bit more just a little bit more. Now, please don't misunderstand Paul's lesson here. It's fine to recognize if you're in a stage of life, you're like, well, no, we do need a bigger house. Like, you know, I think that would suit our family better. Or yeah, the job is just not the right fit for my gift set. Like, that's fine. So long as that need is not consuming you. If the desire for such things is robbing you of peace, then it has become too important. To use Bible language, there's a risk that that thing becomes an idol. If I only had that, then I would be fully content. Paul's not saying that having some kind of abundance is a bad thing. But what he is saying is please do not mistake it as the source of your contentment. Otherwise, you'll slip into a cycle of fault finding. It's my spouse's fault, that's why I'm not content. He or she hasn't fulfilled me. Or it's my career's fault. It hasn't given me what I thought I wanted, it hasn't satisfied, it's California's fault. It hasn't given me what I want. Now, you might blame these things for not giving you contentment, but where did you ever get the idea that they would bring it to you? I've been reflecting on this recently as my wife and I have been talking about different life stages. You know, we, we raised our family in Los Angeles for 10 years. We lived in London for five years, and now we're here in Ventura for, for two years. And they're all very different places to live. And the temptation is to think that the grass is greener on the other side. Well, technically in England, the grass is greener because it rains a lot more. We're in California. We don't even know what to do when it rains. We're like, oh my, I'm staying home. I definitely can't drive out there and go to church. I mean, there's a 27% chance of rain. But philosophically speaking, there's a temptation to think, oh, if if the grass is greener over there. When without Christ, it's all brown. (laughs) That's how life is without Jesus. Like it's never going to give you what you think. It's all slightly dried up. But if we learn to hold loosely to whatever blessings do come our way, we will keep our souls from trusting in them as the source of our contentment. So along with our prayers for provision, and it is good and right that we pray for that, just like Paul needed financial support while he was in prison. We must also pray for growth in our character. Look at the prayer in the book of Proverbs we learned about earlier this year. It beautifully says in Proverbs chapter 30 verse 9, But give me only my daily bread, otherwise I may have too much and disown you and say, Who is the Lord? Yes, pray for the practical provision that you need, but also pray for the character to hold to it loosely. Today, it might be an opportunity for you to say, God, I know we do need a different living situation. I think that just makes sense. The job just isn't working out. And so I'm bringing that to you, but I'm asking you, for the character to face this season well. I'm asking you for the the grace to to be reconciled with the time being, with where I am and with what I have. And even if God does give you that that new job or the new house or or whatever it might be, pray that God would grant you the grace so that you don't mistake it for your source of contentment. That's the first lesson. We need a contentment that prosperity can never give. But there's a second lesson, and that is this. We also need a contentment that hardship can never take. We need a contentment that prosperity can never give, and we need a contentment that hardship can never take. Paul is saying that contentment is a secret in that the things that the world thinks will bring us contentment will not Deliver. It's not immediately obvious to us. But it is also a secret in this way. The things we think will rob us of contentment, they don't need to. And so Paul also says at the end of verse 12, I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. Whether, notice the contrast, well-fed or hungry. Whether living in plenty or in want. So if the temptation on the one hand is to think my contentment is somewhere out there, it's a, if you're an optimist, it's somewhere around the corner. The other temptation is to think it's already gone. It's already passed. It's gone. The world's taken everything from me, even my contentment. And we're just bitter and cynical. It could be as extreme as material poverty, as Paul refers to being in plenty or in want. But friends, it could also be as subtle as unmet expectations. Parenting didn't turn out the way I thought. The job didn't turn out the way that I thought. I got what I wanted, but it's not what I thought. The money isn't giving me what I thought it was going to give. See, Paul says, I've learned to be content in plenty when I actually had what I needed. But I've also learned to be content in want. To accept as graciously the decrease in our lives as we also learn to accept increase in our lives. Paul had a contentment that is neither heightened by good times nor is it diminished by the bad times. That is incredible. Don't you want that? I want it. But notice he says, it's learned. It's something he had to learn. So if you're hearing this right now and you're like, man, this is like so convicting, like I'm discontent right now. That's not said to shame you, but to bring healing to your life. It's a process that Paul himself had to go through. He had to learn it. And in particular, it's one thing to learn in times of plenty, but it's another thing to learn to be content in times of lack, when you experience decrease. And so I think it's really important for us, especially in this season, as we approach Christmas and the the end of the year, that we examine the source of our discontent, if it exists in our life. As we gather together under God's word, it's an opportunity for us to examine the source of discontent and ask God, God, what is it that's making me discontent? Because in that scenario, it's not what we have in our hands or not. It's what's taking place in our hearts. That's where the contentment lesson is learned. And here's what I've come to understand. The opposite of contentment is actually, to use Bible language, covetousness. The opposite of contentment is not just discontent. The opposite of contentment is covetousness. What does that mean? Well, covetousness, kind of like envy and jealousy, is focused on what God has not given to you or on what he's given to another person instead of you. See, one of the Unique temptations that you and I experience, especially when you're going through hard times, is the temptation of comparison. Let's talk about it. Why do they have that, Lord? How come they got the stuff? How come I don't have that? How come that didn't happen to me? It's been well said. You've all heard it. Comparison is the thief Of what? Joy. Comparison is the thief of joy. And it's fueled by covetousness. That is looking to strongly desire inordinately what God has not given to you. That's covetousness. And it's not only bad practically and like emotionally, but it will destroy you spiritually. Proverbs chapter 14 verse 30 says, a tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy makes the bones rot. Thank you, Proverbs, for that colorful language. It is so plain to us from this text that contentment is not the natural default state of the human heart in this broken world. But like an unkept garden, weeds and thorns, they just grow up easily and quickly. And one of those weeds is covetousness. Now you think, wait a minute, isn't covetousness just wanting something that is not yours? Well, yes, but it's so much deeper than that. The 10th commandment in the Old Testament is thou shalt not covet. It's in the 10 commandments. It's so important because what it's saying is there shouldn't be anything you want so badly that your life is ruined without it. There are plenty of things you can want. Like, oh yeah, a bigger space would be great. A little more money would be great. And that's not bad. That's not a bad thing. But it's wanting them so bad that it will destroy you without them. That's a problem. And at that point, you have most likely broken the 10th commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. And that's why Paul says in another letter, to the Colossian church, these words. Put to death, Colossians 3 verse 5, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, those seem obvious to us, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Oh, that stings. The first one you're like, yeah, impurity, of course. Passion, evil desire, yep, sexual immorality, obviously. But covetousness is one of the respectable sins of the modern church. We decry sexual immorality in the culture and yet we allow covetousness to thrive at times within our own hearts in the church. Yet Paul adds that little line being very clear, covetousness is idolatry and what must be done with it it needs to be put to death because at the heart this discontent fueled by covetousness the sin is actually this it's wanting completeness apart from God it's wanting completeness apart from what God has ordained for your life And church, this gets so practical and real. I have seen marriages break apart. And even though they say on the surface, well, it was incompatibility, the reason was idolatry. I've seen people along the way look to things more than God to give them the content that they truly need. And it leads them to a place of disaster. Disaster. So be honest and ask today, God, what is my unhappiness linked to? What is my disconnect or my discontent linked to? What besides you have I put my trust in? And what am I really living for? That's why we often call covetousness a thief. Because it robs God of glory and you of contentment. Because discontentment is a sign that you're looking in the wrong place. Friends, what we need is a contentment that prosperity in this life can never give you. But we also need a contentment that hardship can never take from you. So how do we find it? Well, that's the third lesson. We need a contentment that comes only through faith. Don't you want to be free in that way? When I read the words of Paul here, I'm like, yes, I want to be able to say that. I've learned to be content with whatever may come. He's not saying it's easy. Nor is he saying that times of abundance is bad. But I want to know a contentment that that the world can't give me and the world cannot take from me. Well, how can I find it? Well, it only comes through faith. And I want you to notice, Paul did not draw on his inner strength He did not pull himself up by his bootstraps and say, well, I just learned to be my best self. He didn't say that. He learned contentment. How did he learn contentment? Through his continual reliance on Jesus Christ. There is no other way. Learning to have this attitude of contentment in both prosperity and in adversity is so unusual that Paul uses that word, I've learned the secret. Or you know what it literally means? I've gained insight by being an insider. That's what it means. He said, hey, I've gained insight by being an insider. You're like, well, what do you mean by being an insider, Paul? Well, verse 13 explains what he means by that. I'm an insider on this secret, what is not immediately obvious, because I trust in Jesus. And so famously he says in verse 13, I can do all this through him who gives me strength. That is the source of his secret. I can do all things through him. That's the key phrase, through Christ. It means I am in a relationship with God. Now, point of clarification. This is one of those verses in the Bible that is grossly misused. Let me give you one example that I wasn't necessarily around for, but it does exist on the internet. There is a famous uh, video of these evangelistic outreaches where these teams would come in of very strong men. And what they would do is they would rip up phone books. For those of you, for the kids in the room, phone books back in the day, there were these very large books that contained white and yellow pages. They were very large, like hundreds of pages. There was no Google. And if you wanted a plumber, you had to look in the phone book. They were huge. And so there was this evangelistic team and and they would say, we could do all things through Christ who strengthens us. And they would take these phone books and they would rip them apart and the kids would be wowed. Sadly, that and many other examples of that are terrible examples of bad interpretations of this verse. This verse is not to be stripped out of its context. I could do all things. I could fly. Like okay. This is like Bible study 101. Like what is the context here? It's not about ripping phone books. What is the context? The context is about facing circumstances both good and bad. The context is about prosperity and adversity. Paul is in jail. Paul needed financial resources. He got that aid, but he also reminds them that he would have been okay even without the aid. Why? Because he can face those circumstances, all kinds of circumstances through him. In other words, there will be no circumstance that is ever too much for God. There will be no circumstance that you ever find yourself in that God goes, guys, I can't help you out here. And yet, how often do we believe that? Lord, it's the end of 2022 and things are dark. And God's like, you're right. I'm out of ideas. I've been working for thousands of years, but you stumped me. Out of all the humans that I've helped for millennia, Tim Chatting, your situations. I've consulted with the angels. There's nothing I can do for you. you stumped me. It's too much. And yet, isn't that how we respond often to the Lord? Lord, I know that Paul, yeah, whatever, jail, blah, blah, blah. But have you ever faced a situation like this? And God's like, I'm out of ideas, fresh out. Against that idea, Paul says in what he's learned, there's no circumstance that is beyond the sovereignty of God. To put it another way, Paul could do all that God wanted him to do through the strength he provided in any circumstance. Let me say it again. God could do All that he needed to do through Paul in any and every circumstance through the strength that he provides. And to put it simply, friends, putting Christ first in your circumstance is the key to contentment. That's it. It's putting Christ first so that you can say with Paul through him. And this contentment is not exclusively Paul's. It is available to all as he makes clear in his closing, verse 19 to 21. And my God, his personal relationship, will meet all your needs. It's not, oh, Paul was so great. He he was such a spiritual person. Oh, he had such a great personality. Well, on the Myers-Briggs, he was like an ENFJ, so of course he was an optimist about his circumstance. He says, my God will provide all your needs, According to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet all God's people in Christ Jesus. The brothers and sisters who are with me send greetings. All God's people here send you greetings. Especially those who belong to Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. He says this isn't something that's exclusive to me. It's something for all. It's available to all. By faith, you enter in the inside of this secret, which is a relationship with Jesus. So how do we get in on that? I wanna land by saying three things. For those of you who do not know Jesus this morning, you must trust in Jesus to save you. You must trust in Jesus to save you. If you do not know Christ... Whatever joy you experience in this life will be temporary at best. Those of you who do not trust in Christ, you have no heaven but the little you experience here on earth. But to those of you who do trust Christ, you have no hell but whatever you experience temporarily on this earth. The discontent that you experience now in your life is meant to be like an alarm clock telling you to trust in Jesus. Only he can give you joy. Trust in him today. And for us as the church, two things. You need to trust in Jesus to sustain you. When you put Christ first, you can say, I can do all things. That is, I can face these circumstances. Nothing will be beyond the ability of God. He may not take you out of the adversity, but he will take you through the adversity. His supply will not be limited by your need. His supply will not be limited to your circumstance, but according to his riches, he says. So trust in him to sustain you. And secondly, church, trust in Jesus to satisfy you in any and every season. Confess your unhappiness and discontent. Unmask any envy or jealousy, naming it even, and receiving God's forgiveness. Because Jesus not only saves us, he sustains us. Only he can heal our discontent. To those who hunger, he says, I'm the bread. To those who thirst, he says, I'm the living water. And it may very well be that in hard times, you can discover that you have a joy that no one can take from you. How? You come in on the inside of a relationship with God. Why can you do that? Because Jesus went on the outside to the outer darkness that our sin deserves when he went to the cross 2,000 years ago to pay the penalty for our sin once and for all and rose again so that we could come in on the inside of that secret, which is a relationship with him. If you have Christ, you have a contentment that the greatest thing on earth can never give you and the worst thing on earth can never take from you. Make Jesus your joy. Let's pray together. Father, I do pray that even now, as we reflect on specific circumstances, as your Holy Spirit is identifying certain areas of our lives, I pray that we would make you our joy, that we would put you first in all of these areas, that we would confess any discontent, that we'd confess any envy, that we confess any jealousy that your Holy Spirit is convicting us of. Not to shame us, but to heal us. Remind us, Lord, that we can learn contentment by the way in which we respond right now. By saying, Jesus, I'm gonna put you first in my marriage. Jesus, I'm gonna put you first in my parenting. Jesus, I'm gonna put you first in my home and my my car and my my money and my friendships, my job and my, my situation and my health and my expectations, I'm gonna put you first. I pray that as we do, that we would agree with Paul today and say, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. And for those who don't know you, Father, I pray that today they would come to know you, that right now they would put their faith and trust in Jesus and be saved and not wait another moment. Holy Spirit, would you do your work in our hearts as we respond in Jesus' name, amen.